This episode was previously recorded and broadcast to a live audience and has not been edited for content. Please excuse any references to slides and Q&A. Thank you for joining us. Okay, let's get started. Welcome everyone. I'm so pleased that you're able to join us today. Before we get started, I'd like to run over some housekeeping matters. First of all, as the University of Utah S.J. Quinney College of Law, we want to acknowledge that this land on which the school is based is named for the Ute tribe, is the traditional and ancestral homeland of the Shoshone, Paiute, Goshute, and Ute tribes. The University of Utah recognizes and respects the enduring relationship that exists between many indigenous peoples and their traditional homelands. Now, I'd like to introduce our panel to you. We have Rand Bateman of Bateman IP and Brent Hawkins from Bennett Tuller. Randy Jeffs of Jeffs and Jeffs was going to join us today, but he woke up with laryngitis, so he won't be able to participate. I'd like to turn it over to Rand and Bennett to introduce themselves, talk a little bit about what they've seen, and then we'll open it up for questions. Okay. Um, so those of you who don't know me, I'm Rand Bateman. Um, I'm an IP attorney. I do both um, prosecution of patents and trademarks as well as uh, IP litigation. I've been at this gig for almost 30 years now. Um, I went to the U for law school. Um, I've worked at a couple of big firms, Snow Christensen and and um, and uh, Durham Jones and Pinnaker back in the days. So, Not, and I'm Brent Hawkins. I'm at, at Bennett Tuller Johnson and Deer. I graduated in 1997. I I like Rand have kind of a a background with some other law firms. I went to school in Chicago. I began work with Kirkland and Ellis. When I came here, I first worked at Snell and Wilmer for a little while before going to Dorsey and Whitney and then to my firm. And my firm may be on the larger size of small because we're now almost 45, 50 attorneys. So um, so um, I'll have kind of that interim perspective, I guess, as we talk. Great. Thank you. So um, for those of you that weren't able to be part of the other two webinars we had on this topic. This is part three of the Changing Utah Legal Market. We had part one from the large local firms and part two was the large national firms that have moved into the market. And so now we have part three, which this is the small, mid-size boutique firm perspective. So my first question is, have, have either of you and your firms seen the transition with the ability to obtain qualified attorneys to work for your firm. And then the follow-up of that is because of what's happening in the market now, are you looking to hire more students or more laterals? That That's a great question. I think, you know, for us, we've always loved hiring right from school. Not sure exactly why that is. It's hard maybe in part to kind of, higher laterally for us um, and, and you never exactly know kind of who you're getting if you're hiring laterally you might get someone who's awesome or someone who just isn't a great fit for a law firm what we're finding right now is that yes a lot of students coming out are expecting really high salaries and that's because they can command them in the current economy with national firms coming in so it's becoming harder for us to to find those 
those candidates. They they sometimes go elsewhere, um, but we we try to still have a competitive kind of opening bid and kind of describe how we're different from some of those other firms. And we're also you know kind of actually hiring more laterals. We have I think of our our three or four last attorneys. They've all been laterals from other firms that have wanted to come back to this market. And have been at big firms and realized kind of some of the pros and cons of a bigger firm versus a smaller firm. Yeah, I, I'm kind of the same way. I prefer actually hiring in law school and having them work for me during law school. IP's got a fairly steep learning curve. Um, and if you can get somebody in law school and have them for a couple years before they come on as an associate, it gives you the chance to to build that and go get over that learning curve kind of slowly and let them just adapt to it. And uh, so that's what I've usually preferred. The downside of that, of course, is that you're picking up all of the training costs, um, which, you know, on the front end, when someone comes out of law school, they're usually not really prepared to be profitable. You know, it takes a lot of time to learn how to do things um, properly and and so you end up your first couple of years, you're usually not really making any money off anybody. Um, in fact, some, some people I've had that uh, over the years were, uh, I mean, fairly large losses the first year or two, and then turned out to be great attorney. They just needed a little bit more time to, to get in their groove and find what they like to do and what they did well at. Um, but that's, you know, that's a downside, but it's something I take on just because I, I, prefer working people in uh, my experience has been better with people I've uh, overall with people I've hired during school than trying to get do laterals. So um, it would seem to me and correct me if I'm wrong, but it would seem to me that the, the smaller the firm, the more value there would be to having a student come out that is quote unquote practice ready. They've done more clinic work. They've done more, like hands-on types of classes, would that, is that true? And would that lessen that learning curve a bit? Absolutely. I think, I think so too. And, and there are some, you know, I, I mentioned I do transactional work. So I do mergers and acquisitions, venture, private equity, kind of corporate work. And, and historically, you know, that kind of whole side of practice has been ignored by, by, um, Kind of clinical programs in law schools, but that's changing, you know. And 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 now a lot of law schools have adopted kind of more transactional post clinical programs where you learn how to do things like draft a resolution or think about a purchase agreement and the like. And those sorts of those sorts of folks that have that experience are able to to Rand's point kind of hit the ground running a little bit better with those because they kind of know their way around those sorts of documents and what they're doing. So let's assume that there was a there's a two-year out attorney who came out of law school, went to a big national firm, and then wanted to come back to be in a in a smaller mid-sized firm. Would you view that attorney as as the same way you would view a brand new graduate? Or would you view them as as a two-year attorney had they worked with you from the beginning? Does that make sense? Yeah. I think you know um looking at our firm the answer would be it would kind of depend on what they were doing at that at that first firm. If they were doing a very specialized practice, let's call it like mortgage securitization, for example, then there wouldn't be a whole lot of relevance 
to our practice. That said, we wouldn't dismiss that person two years out is not very far. We would still say, hey, we can tell you're bright. You know, you know kind of how to spot issues and to address issue and to do kind of good quality work. And you've suffered through working through that kind of mortgage securitization work. We think that you can absolutely be a good fit here. But yes, there are a lot of things that you don't know yet. And we're putting kind of faith and trust in you that you're going to be able to kind of help out here and kind of do the stuff we do. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, if you get an attorney who's been in a big firm and say, for example, all they're doing is patent cooperation treaty work, you know, little narrow niche, um, they're going to be viewed as more like a fresh out of law school student because they just, they're not going to know how to do a lot of the stuff we do. And the smaller your firm, usually, unless you're a super specialized boutique, the broader you need to be able to do because you may have a bunch of patent litigation going on right now, but you know, two months from now, it may be almost all prep and prosecution work for patent work. So, our, 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 the last lateral that we took into our firm actually didn't have a transactional background. He'd been out for like seven years, but he was still kind of stuck doing um, kind of diligence and background work in litigation, right? So he was still doing kind of file review work. So we, we we took him on. We know that you know he's he's coming on board here without much kind of background in transactional work. We know he's a bright person. He's willing to kind of not get full credit for his time served, his seven years you know, doing doing that other work. But you know we're excited to have him and think that he'll be able to to um, to be a great attorney here. But but his prior work maybe isn't exactly on point. What about the pay scale for those guys? Do you pay them as a seven year out or do you pay them as a in that case? I think we kind of we, we I think we treat him as like a like a, a second or third year out. And he was, by the way, with the big firm. So he was earning kind of almost kind of mid kind of nine figures when he left. Right. So, you know, so he's earning a less less with us now, but he saved a lot of money and kind of realized that that he did, wasn't on kind of a great path and didn't like litigation. So he made what almost kind of amounts to kind of a career change for him, you know, in his situation. Yeah. Our, our compensation system is just, is totally a flex system. So it, people aren't necessarily put in a particular slot. We look at what we think they'll generate and then allow them to work it out. And, you know, their salary will adjust with what they bring in. So how much emphasis do the small firms put on the young attorney for doing their own rainmaking? I think for us, it's secondary. What we care a lot more about is quality and efficiency of work. Quality is the first thing. Efficiency is the second thing. We're not worried about people rainmaking for a good five or six years. We do, we do kind of are concerned if they don't have what we perceive to be the skills of rainmaking or have some real personality quirks or hygiene issues or whatever else it is, right? That might might make us doubt whether they'd ever kind of be in that that position because that is important. You know, we need that as well. But but the first kind of things we look at are just pure smarts and quality of work and efficiency. Those things are key because what matters most for us is kind of keeping our current clients happy and well served, right? We do want them to be thinking about generating their own work, but but we want to make sure that they're able to kind of be kind of good, good, um, a good fit for our clients and our work at the beginning. Yeah, it's the same for us. And one of our, 
for us, it's key that somebody look like they have the skill set where they'll be able to develop clientele. Because what you don't want is you don't want somebody who just comes in, kind of feeds off the rainmaking of other people and is like that all the time. And I've had people who do that and it's hard because it's harder to, to do reasonable billings as you age up as a lawyer if you're getting hand-me-down work from other people. Um, unless you know unless the the clientele grows where you're getting more and more partner level work um you need people as they approach partnership to be generating some partnership work instead of just taking from the other partners so, i think that's uh, right i think one of the things to rant's point too is that uh and why quality and efficiency are so important to us is because they will be their kind of own source of work i'm thinking about one of my one of my partners who's a lot smarter than me, but he has some he has some conditions like he has hearing and speech impairments. Um, but but he is very, very smart, very, very capable. And and perhaps he gets judged by by folks, attorneys or even clients unfairly. But once they get to know him, they don't want to talk to me or someone else anymore. They want to talk to him. Right. Because he is so competent and so capable. So. So, you know, without, if you don't have that quality and efficiency, then you can't, in my view, and I guess there's some exceptions, just be a very effective rainmaker and kind of have good relations with clients. So um, there may be out in the market, this superficial impression that if you've worked at one of these giant national firms, that you are somehow smarter or have gotten better experience than if you came out and immediately went to a small mid-sized firm. Do you think clients view that that way? And do you think that clients would view your firms as having achieved some kind of coup if you can hire those lawyers? I don't think our clients care. In fact, uh, um, you know, one of the, when I, you know, went to big law for a while, it actually scared some of our clients away because they just assumed that automatically meant my bills go way up. <laughs> um, and if they're comfortable with the lawyer, they don't care where they went to law school. They don't care um, if they've worked at a, at a big firm or not. Um, it's just, it's, you know, it's this lawyer doing a good job for me. Um, so, you know, I think that it can help among lawyers if you say, yeah, I, I worked at Cooley or I worked at, you know, one of some national firm. But it's basically just saying you were probably pretty bright, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're a great lawyer. I mean, I've known some really bright attorneys who, you know, just struggled to really do be efficient and, and rain make and practicing law. So, um, yeah, for my clientele, of course, my, my clientele are mostly smaller companies. Um, you know, some huge companies, maybe they're impressed, but for my clients, they couldn't care less. I think, I think, it, you know, I think both things are true, Lori. I think that, you know, what we face sometimes is um, for larger clients that maybe have outside boards, they've never heard of us, right? And so they are immediately a little bit suspicious and say, well, why aren't you using kind of big firm? I have connections there. And sometimes that happens to us, right? And of course, we're not super happy about that, but we get it. You know, we're not a known commodity nationwide. You know, that's that's certainly something that we can't really fight against at some level. 
Um, on the flip side, you know, we have had with respect to a lot of matters, you know, some of our competitors and colleagues go with national firms and they're to Rand's point, their billing rates have gone way up. And we've said, hey, would you talk to us? Would you help us? You know, we we were formerly using so-and-so, but their rates have gone way up. We need we need some help. And we know you and we like you and we know you do that kind of same quality of work. And so and so, you know, it's it's uh it can be sometimes frustrating a little bit with respect to bigger clients, but it's very useful, I think, to also be more efficient and to kind of care about what our clients care about, you know, to kind of focus on not just lawyers are often um, criticized for caring about commas and about punctuation and things like that. You know, and we don't tend to care about that. We tend to care in our practice much more about tax impacts for a transaction um, you know, how do we get kind of more dollars in for our client, looking at things like networking capital adjustments, purchase price allocations, making sure transactions are tax free or tax deferred? Um, how can they do kind of charitable planning in advance? Things like that that really matter to our clients. Um, and, you know, that, that also are hopefully provide with respect to our bills something of a return on investment for our clients instead of just billing the heck out of our clients for no apparent reason. So that's how we have to kind of focus our practice, you know, at least in what I do. So um, I'm going to admit something. And so I'm going to kind of maybe shame myself here. But I watched part of the cross-examination of the Johnny Depp trial. And I wished so much that that cross-examination had happened last spring so I could show my students what a really good cross looks like. but. Um, I, I was watching that and anytime the lead attorney would ask for an exhibit, there are six people back there immediately pulling up an exhibit. There's no looking through a file or trying to look through a notebook or anything to pull up the exhibit that you need to talk about. I mean, it was almost instantaneous. So there are things that these big firms can do that are charging $4,000 an hour that maybe a small boutique firm can't do. Do you see that as a hindrance or do you see it as a way to capitalize on bringing more real value to your client in a way that the client needs? I think that it depends, right? I mean, I, I have situations where I refer my clients to big firms. You know, they'll, they'll have a particular issue and I'll tell them, look, this firm has expertise in this area. Um, it will cost you less in the long run to go and use this person because they know what they're doing. And, you know, in, in a day, they'll resolve this issue. And it would take me a week or two to get up to speed, learn the law well enough and do hopefully as good a job as they would do. Um, but for a lot of my clients, that's, you know, a once every couple of years type of scenario. But the rest of the time, do they want to be paying, you know, over a thousand dollars an hour? Um, one of the, one of the clients I actually referred to somebody to the person I referred them to did a really good job. There was a related piece of litigation, which he said, oh, well, I'll just keep at that firm since they've kind of got expertise there. And he came back to me and said, oh, I made such a mistake. He said, I should have had you up there. And I'm like, why? This is a big name firm. And he said, the, the attorney who was charging him $1,200 an hour was literally shaking while he was talking to the judge. And he said, I'm sitting there going, this guy's charging me way more than my other counsel. And 
you know, I've seen Rand litigate and he's not shaking when he's talking to the judge. Um, so there, there's times, I mean, there's, there's really times where the big firms, I think, add a huge amount of value. When you, when you have a particular problem, um, you get a specialist who, you know, it's like a brain surgeon. You don't want to go to your GP for brain surgery. But I'm not going to take my, you know, my kids to the brain surgeon when a, uh, when a just normal pediatrician will do a good job. Yeah, and I think as, you know, as this is about kind of small firms and, and um groups like that i think rand's making a good point like if there's a if there's a patent prosecution matter we don't do that in our firm we have litigators and we have folks that do kind of other areas of the law and real property and other things but but you know that's not something that we can or should do and so we'll refer out to kind of other practitioners that meet our clients needs such as rand who focuses in that that area of law so one of the things you have to kind of do and be careful about as you as you know, Lori, is kind of know what you're good at and what you're not, you know, and even if it's within kind of your area of, of presumed expertise, you know, I'm, I know for myself, I'm not a I'm not a fund formation attorney, right, even though that's transactional and I have a lot of clients ask me for it still even still I'll refer that out because it's just not what I do. It's an M&A matter. Yes. A mergers and acquisitions matter. Yes, I'll do that. But you got to kind of know what you're good at and what you should not be messing around with you know as a practitioner <laughs> and i worry a little bit about you know the the in about the very kind of small shops that kind of presume to do everything because i can't imagine they do any of it well at all um so there's some there's balance there a little bit about kind of what you're good at and knowing what you're good at and some specialization so um with all these big national firms moving into the market have you noticed any upheaval for your firms in terms of finding quality talent if you're looking for it or or is all the or the national firms snapping up all the good lawyers and the perspective seems to be that now that we have these national law firms in that everyone is looking deeper into the classes than they would have previously and and having been forced to grade papers and realize that the the spread between an A and a C is minuscule, that maybe looking deeper into the class doesn't is a is a good thing. Yeah, I, I think you find a lot of um a lot of really good attorneys who just weren't great law students. And, and I know a lot of attorneys who weren't who weren't Coif, who weren't cum laude, whatever, who I think are just amazing attorneys. And I know a few, and I've actually hired a few over the years who were top 10% and stuff and really struggled to do good regular legal work. They could test well, but, you know, whether it's problems with time management, whether it's problems with, um, you know, being able to generate clients, whatever. So, you know, depending on what the needs are as of the firm, you know, that solid B student may turn out to be just an awesome attorney for your firm. And I, I think we put a little bit too much emphasis on, you know, where you graduated in law school and, and not enough on, you know, what are they going to turn out to be as an attorney? We still put a lot of emphasis on law school and grades, but I think, you know, I think, you know, at least in terms of when I look at a resume, I care as much about kind of undergraduate performance and what's going on. Like I've, 
I've, you know, if someone has kind of like a hard science background or something, then more credit to them or accounting because we use so much of that in our transactional practice, then, then that, that has some extra value points. Or if I'm aware of if they've been working kind of full-time while going to school, that matters because that's a lot harder than if you're just kind of a dedicated student. And it shows a fair amount of resolve and ability to kind of take care of yourself, which are important things, I think, for skills for young, young lawyers to be able to do, to manage themselves and to work under tight timetables and be efficient. So those things, I think, do matter to us a lot. Um, you know, we were, we've been fortunate as nationals have come on, you know, they've, of course, bid for a number of our attorneys. We haven't had folks leave. A lot of folks have been, uh, have found that it's been hard to um, retain attorneys. I don't know exactly how we've been or why we've been fortunate in that respect. I hope it continues because having having attorneys leave is very hard for a firm like ours. Um, but um, but to, I guess to your point, yeah, we are we still kind of look for really quality candidates, both in terms of law school performance, but also undergraduate and life experience. Um, and we um, and we are also more open than we have been, you know, seeing kind of non-traditional candidates, particularly laterals, coming from other firms back into our market. We've, you know, historically not been as interested in candidates like that, but we've had our last several candidates have fit that description. So when you have, and when lawyers moved firms, before the big national firms moved in and lawyers would change firms, there were always the confidentiality problems that arose with clients and maybe conflicting out clients and, and those kinds of things. Do you think it is the same if you take a lateral from a national firm or is are your client bases sufficiently different that those confidentiality problems wouldn't necessarily exist with a lawyer from that would come to you from a large national firm? I think it kind of depends a little bit. We we are careful to always do complex checks, but I'm thinking about like one case and maybe this will say too much, but but it was, I think the same story I was telling you about, about this, this lateral is coming in to do transactional work with more of a litigation background. He did a lot of work for Volkswagen and the TDI litigation, right? None of that is relevant to our practice. We don't represent Volkswagen, nor, you know, we don't have any, we're not part of a class action on the other side of those that purchased TDI vehicles, you know, that big diesel and performance um, scandal. So in that case, it made our job easier as we kind of thought about conflicts with that lateral coming in. Um, There's fewer things, to, fewer boxes to check. Yeah, and the same for mine. My, my clientele are mostly smaller companies. Occasionally we have run-ins with national companies, but for the most part, uh, we don't. But the if challenge we to, is more, when you bring them on, the challenge is more, are they going to have a broad enough skill set to cover what we cover? Because, you know, unless they've been out quite a while, they've probably got a really good experience in a fairly narrow area. And the smaller your firm is, the unless you're, you know, hyper-focused on one area, the more you need somebody who can play all positions. So this issue came up when we had parts one and two, and that was the impression that when a graduate goes to a big national firm, they get stuck doing document review for five years and they never get to do anything, meet with a client or 
go to court or draft a real contract or something. Do you think that holds true or do you think that is that is just an impression that people have? I think it, you know, it's hard to say. It depends really on the nature of your practice and where you go to a big firm. You know, I think some big firms that you might be kind of put into like a, if you're working on, let's say, an IPO, initial public offering for um, a New York firm, you might be kind of cordoned off and doing kind of more your diligence review, or if you're working for Volkswagen for kind of a big litigation matter. But for other firms, like I started at Kirkland Ellis and I did private equity work and I did several things and several kinds of things from the beginning and it was good training, you know, so I don't have, I don't have bad things to say about that. I think it much, much depends upon where you go. I've had, I've had one friend who did go and did and worked on in securitization of mortgages. And in his experience was different than mine. He valued it and liked kind of having a nice kind of careful cordoned off practice, but it made kind of his ability to transition that um, elsewhere more difficult. Yeah, I, I think it's the same. And it a lot depends on, on your firm. Uh, I, I've seen firms that do a really good job of trying to take associates to hearings to get them involved. So they at least get to see the mechanics working as opposed to just doing doctor view. And then I know other people have gone to national firms where literally they were billing 22 hours, 2,200 hours a year of looking at documents. I think one thing, Lori, to your point is that we can't afford not to have, you know, even our young attorneys kind of work on agreements or talk to clients, even if it's a matter of doing diligence and filling out disclosure schedules we'll need to have them in the meetings hearing what the client is saying about their material contracts or litigation or whatever as we're working on agreements otherwise we're not serving our client we don't have the luxury of just billing our clients millions of dollars to review boxes of documents it's not kind of part of our our practice so um brent you kind of precipitated my next question and that is i i can perceive because i have I had a litigation practice, how easy it is to take a brand new attorney that's been out for two days and take them to court and have them participate in a mediation or a client interview or do all those things. How, how does it happen with the, in the transactional practice? I think for me, at least it happens in two or three ways. So we do have, you know, kind of, Young attorneys beyond deal calls where we are negotiating points and trying to structure things. We certainly include them in kind of emails and kind of structure diagrams about how things are coming together. We try to say, all right, we have we have this transaction. Here's kind of a closing index of maybe the, the 30 documents that we're going to need for this. Here's where we need your help. It's on documents 13 to 18. And here are some forms for kind of where you can kind of think about kind of starting kind of drafting what those will look like. And here are some of the core issues you need to be thinking about. That's how we are. So our training is not as probably as formal as some of the big national firms that have very kind of well thought out kind of document management systems and knowledge bases and training practices. It's more kind of on the go, on the fly as needed, which, you know, I, I know it's, it's probably sometimes frustrating to young attorneys, but it's also realistic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, because law school really is just boot camp, right? <laughs> Get ready to go to the war. So, Rand, you said at the beginning that IP practice can have a steep learning curve. So how do you perceive it being different coming into a small boutique IP practice like yours versus going to a giant 
national firm that does some IP work? Well, if you go to a big firm, you're typically going to get assigned within a group. So if you're um, if you're you know, have a patent, if you're patent registered, so you've got you know you're registered with the Patent and Trademark Office, you're probably going to get funneled into the patent group. And then if you've got a good science background, you're probably going to be funneled into the patent prosecution group. And so you're going to get probably really good development in writing patent applications, filing them, responding to office actions and pushing them through. But you're probably not going to spend much time doing patent litigation. You're going to probably spend no time doing trademark work copyright work or litigation regarding those. And so you'll get to be, I mean, most, my experience with most people who've gone to big, big firms has been that, that they're really good in one area. We, if you come to a firm like mine, you're going to get um, patent, prosecution, litigation, trademark, copyright work. You're going to get all of that in the first month. And so you're going to, you're going to go less deep, but you're going to get a lot brighter, broader um, coverage, which which is good, I think, in a way, especially when you're young, because it it helps you figure out what you like to do. I mean, I know people who are who are registered patent attorneys, but they do mostly trademark work because they just like that better. Um, there are a lot who end up doing patent litigation because they like that better. Um, there are a few, you know, there are some attorneys who have split personalities can do patent prosecution and litigation. Um, but, uh, and those are very different skill sets. So it's just, there's a lot of difference in how broad of a, uh, of a base you have. And that really plays, I think that can really play long-term to your success. If you're, if you're looking around coming out of a big national firm and a firm needs a good patent prosecutor, um, you can fit that niche. But if a firm needs, we just have a lot of IP needs, it's going to be easier, I think, to get on if you've had a broad array of experience. So you can do trademark work, you can do copyrights, you can do, because, you know, for some firms, they say, you know, our, we don't know that everyone's going to be busy doing patent work. Sometimes that, die, that you know, cut dies off for a while. Well, if we want people who we can shift over and have them doing something else. Maybe they shift over to doing litigation. So it's just, it's, it's totally contextual on whether it's going to help you or hurt you, but there's upsides and downsides to both, I think. So um, having the big national firms move into the market has caused waves for some firms and ripples for other firms. How's it, have you guys seen it impact you guys, your firms? Virtually no impact or a little ripple. I think I think it's been you know it's 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 caused an increase in in kind of first year compensation coming out of schools, and that's something we have we've had to kind of react to and think about. It's made you know a, a, some of the firms coming in are not aiming to do even so much Utah work as much as make kind of Utah kind of a service space for clients elsewhere, right? And so to that degree, it hasn't kind of hurt um, us. We're always we're always competing against big firms whether they're in market or not for kind of top flight deals. So when I say top flight deals, like for mergers and acquisitions in like the nine figures, 
right? Those, it's almost always, even if it's a long standing client, we're going to be pitted in a beauty contest to try to pitch, repitch our client and someone else is pitching them. And so we, we face maybe a little bit more of that, but maybe not that much more. And with respect to kind of folks that have been at regional or even kind of local firms and have moved to national rates, as I mentioned, we're finding a lot more work coming in in like the eight figure um, M&A space because because our rates are lower and folks know us and and they say, hey, yeah, we um, so-and-so is really expensive and we don't want to pay those rates. We know what you guys can do and we're glad to have you. And we'd like to have you work on this and we're, we're glad to oblige. So it means that we have to be, again, we have to be kind of efficient and we have to give, provide and demonstrate kind of value for our clients and give them kind of a good return on investment. So um, I <clears throat> have been led to understand that silicone slopes and the creation of silicone slopes has been one of the attractive features to get these big national firms into the market. Have you seen that particular client group stay local or have they moved national? Were they always national or have you seen much movement? They, they were always national. You know, when we talk about Silicon Slopes is not, you know, it hasn't been. And one criticism of it is, is that it hasn't really been about the emerging tech companies. It's been about the larger established ones. And they've, they've, they've always had kind of um, large firm kind of, um, client connections or chosen to go that direction. So that really hasn't impacted us in a meaningful way. Um, I, I do, I do, I kind of agree with you, Lori, that probably, you know, the Silicon Slopes, you know, probably has kind of attracted the attention of, of um, regional firms. I think as much or more than that has been kind of your good work, Lori, and um, at the U and also BYU, where I think um, these, these larger firms are realizing that they're getting great students out of our um, Utah universities, right? In terms of that are well-trained and smart and capable. And so they're saying, why haven't we been tapping into this talent source? Um, and and so they're they're looking at kind of creating these hubs in, in kind of a post-COVID world where we can have Zoom meetings instead of being in person. Right? I think, hey, wait, we can, we can have folks in Utah service clients and the Midwest or on a coast. There's nothing that wrong with that. And they're, and they're right, that's fine. You know, that's, that's been kind of our experience as much as anything. Um, it is true that some of the incentive for them to move into the market is they hire our graduates who then move out, but want to come back. And they keep, like we're talking about losing talent that start with us and then go to the big firms. But now it's these big firms losing talent because they hire these students and then they want to come back home. Yeah. And here because of the quality of life and the environment and everything. so. I I have heard that part of the incentive was it's a way to keep the people that they hired. Well, that that's really true. There's a lot of folks from um, particularly University of Utah BYU who want to come back here, and they've been with the big firms, and this provides kind of a great opportunity for them to do that. I'm aware of like folks in my neighborhood from that fit that description. They've been partners in California and Texas in a couple of cases, and they're back now because their practices are portable and they're still working for the big firms. Have you noticed any ethical issues with people bouncing around firms a bit more than usual? I, you know, we've been blissfully kind of um, ignorant of those, Lori, in that we haven't really had those kind of, we haven't, 
we haven't tried to or and we haven't landed any kind of incoming partners with big books of business and practice groups, nor have we lost any. And so I but I am aware of those issues exist. And so I don't I don't have a very kind of um, thoughtful and insightful response to your question just because we haven't experienced it. Um, what about you Ron? on our side? Yeah, I, it really hasn't been a problem for us, but yeah, I think it, right, if you're bouncing around a lot, it raises conflict issues, you know, because you, you may not know everything that was going on at the firm, but you're charged with knowing everything that was going on with the firm. So. And certainly, so, you, know, I, you know, in the kind of the tech space, people leave from, let's say, one company and they go and start another company. And there may be questions you're not even aware of about, well, did they take you know, maybe some intellectual property from from their former employer and things. And so conflicts can be really hard to sort out at any level, even when you're careful. Um, I was reading cases on the 10th Circuit docket yesterday, and there are employment agreement disputes with restrictive employment agreements. And I'm not exactly sure, but I have the impression that Utah seems to be moving away from enforcing these very strict employment agreements. And I'm wondering if you think those would be an effective way to keep lawyers. You mean subjecting lawyers to like some covenants? Yeah, restrictive around? covenants. But, and and, I, and I, I, I'd be the first to say that I don't know ethics rules very well. <laughs> and I have, there's a partner here who does that I kind of subject these things to. But what I've understood, and you'll, you'll both correct me, is that, is that, for lawyers, really, there's a strong um, public policy against any covenants not to compete, in part because, at least in theory, we value so much our clients' ability to choose whoever they want to serve them, right? And so how dare you say that um, a company can't use RAND for, to provide legal services? That That's going to be, I think, struck down pretty easily by most courts. So I don't see that being kind of the kind of... Um, I don't see contractual restrictions working to kind of stop lawyers from moving about. I think, you know, certainly money is a motivator uh, for lawyers, as it is for everyone. Uh, quality of life issues and and kind of where firms are and kind of the type of work that clients want, that, that lawyers want to do. Those things are going to be the key drivers, more kind of economic incentives and, and lifestyle incentives than, than contractual restrictions. But I'll let Lori, I'm sure you probably know ethical rules and ran better than me. So I'll, I'll be quiet and let you. No, I, I think you're right on point with that. Although, you know, there has been a trend in a bunch of other industries the last couple of years of having um, basically agreements where you have to reimburse training. And I wonder if firms would try and say, all right, fine. If you, but if you leave us during the first two years, you have to repay us. Ten thousand or twenty thousand dollars for all this training that we spent on you. Um, that would probably be legal if you can get people to sign off on it. I don't think it would. One other thing, people and, and, to and, you, but um, but as far as prohibiting people from leaving or competing, I think non competes are. My understanding is they're not viewed as ethical because of the very reason that Brent pointed out the ability think, of people to hire. I think one of the, one of the things that you know, I think that. Uh, lost to not to think about, and I don't know exactly how to describe this adequately. Is that, is that you know, um, 
law firms are mercenary and dollars matter, but they matter even more for like a larger firm than a smaller firm because we don't advertise things like profits per partner. You know, we know what those things kind of are, but they matter a lot for like the the AMLA 100, right? And so they're much faster to hire, um, frankly, attorneys that we would not, I'm going to say this, I don't mean to be kind of elitist, that we would not give an interview to, right? Um, particularly in the last couple of years. They're hiring people left and right, but they're also very willing to cut people loose uh, for performance or other reasons or just that they don't have the work for them. And so, you know, um, I guess our view is a little bit, you know, it, it sounds kind of maybe cheesy, but we have kind of a more of a familial relationship. We didn't lay people off through COVID. We as partners kind of took pay cuts and as we kind of got through that, I'm not sure, you know, and that's, I think what we would do if, if we had, if we find ourselves in an, an economic turndown, we would be very slow to kind of, um, to let people go, you know, um, unless it was for a really significant performance issue where I don't think that you find quite that same kind of loyalty from kind of big firms. So um, we've heard a lot over the years about work-life balance and, and I, I seriously hate that term because it, to me, it, it rings of you're not having life when you're at work. Right. I mean, it's more like kind of a, quality of life discussion rather than a work-life balance discussion. But my own personal biases on that phraseology aside, do you think that that a local firm has more flexibility to offer a quality of life analysis over one of the large national firms? Or, or do you think that's a um, mistaken impression? I think kind of both, you know, Randall, go ahead, I'll weigh in. Oh, I, um, you know, I think they have the flexibility. Do they use that flexibility? Depends on the firm. And and it's, I mean, and it's hard, you know, um, you know, there's been a lot of, a lot of talk about, you know, work-life balance and, and um, among privy associates and the like, but, but, you know, um, one of the things you gotta, you, you can be kind of maybe more readily a jerk at kind of a, at a large firm than you can at a small firm. It, you know, if I have a colleague that I really value that wants to take a lot of vacation, that's okay. I have to kind of grin and bear it. And I may have to pick up a little more than slack, you know, as a result of that. That's kind of part of the deal, I guess, for being at kind of a smaller firm. We have we have fewer kind of resources to kind of look to to allocate and share work. Right. So in that sense, you know, uh, at the same time, you know, that that puts a burden on me to kind of know kind of what kind of clients I want to have and what to say no to, right? And say, no, I'm not going to do it that fast or no, go go talk to someone else because I just have too much to do or I'm not, I don't like you, you know, I don't want, I don't want to do work with you, which is a luxury, of course, that we have. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think s smaller firms have an easier time adopting, you know, a flexible arrangements. I mean, you know, over the, over the years, I've hired a fair number of, of female patent attorneys who um, didn't want to work 40 hours a week. Some of them only wanted to work 20, and some of them wanted to work 40 one week and none the next week. Uh, I think it's a little easier in a small to mid-sized firm to accommodate that 
than a national firm because, you know, you're having to create custom agreements for everybody. And I think the bigger you get, the harder it is to justify keeping on top of all those things. So. So how have you have your respective firms found the the impact of the pandemic and restructuring the way we work? Because I know for from my perspective, um, I can be more efficient doing certain tasks if I don't have to commute to the office. And and I don't know if law firms. I I I mean I've I've heard that law firms have also adopted that posture for a lot of their people. Rand Rand's got a pretty tough commute. <laughs> from your, I can see from your background, you're, you're maybe downtown or somewhere today. I, I had to have an excuse to actually wear a tie <laughs> and a collared shirt. And so you know, I, I have this closet with all these clothes that don't get worn anymore. My my. Uh, Dry cleaner has forgotten my name. And uh, yeah, yeah. for me, 90% of days are shorts and a t-shirt in my home office. Um, a lot of my clients would prefer to have meetings by Zoom. And so, you know, for the ones who don't, I have office space available. But yeah, I, I, it's totally changed. I never thought I could cut the umbilical cord to the office. And now it's like, uh, I have to go to the office once this week. Um, so... I think it's going it, to, I think it, that it can improve quality of life. I think it a lot de- though depends on someone's family circumstance. If you got a bunch of young kids, it's really hard sometimes to work from home just because you have, you know, kids running. Well, I say that, but anyone who knows my daughters, even though they're like in college now, they're still coming in all the time. Um, so, uh, but it's, uh, it's just, it's, you know, what works for everybody. I think the cool thing about it is I think it lets everybody, adapt to what they want. I know people who go into the office every day, but the office is mostly empty. So they're getting more done in the office um, because you're not spending as much water cooler time. One, one of the really rewarding things for me in practice, I didn't really realize that I found it rewarding until like a year ago, is just being able to kind of talk to clients, you know, and, and so I, I'm really, I really kind of like kind of the chance to use Zoom and other kind of platforms to connect with clients better. You know, it's it's much easier and better to kind of be on a call, you know, kind of see, talk with the client kind of face to face that way, even though it's not truly face to face and 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 screen share and work through things, you know, together. Mm-hmm. That That's that's a, a lot more fun for me than trying to kind of have this kind of bizarre kind of email or phone tag to try to figure things out or to draft something kind of crazy and have a client, you know, not kind of understand what I'm trying to do. Um, yeah. So that's that's useful, I think. That's not maybe your question, Laura. You're more you were talking more about about just kind of where folks work from as part of COVID. Well, part. Not necessarily. I I think somebody said this the other day. You know, you never want to waste a good crisis because I think there are a lot of things we've been able to learn through the pandemic about how we work and and other kinds of things. So. It wasn't just where we are, but also functionality. So thanks. There is a question from the audience. From a cursory look at both panelists' firm attorney bios, it appears there might be literally one minority diverse attorney. Larger firms are sometimes beholden to Fortune 
100 publicly traded corporate clients who require outside counsel to have a certain level of diversity on, on the legal teams they hire. Is the lack of diversity of the attorneys in the uh, your firms a result of not having to deal with clients of those requirements? How does that dynamic play into your hiring decisions? Curious as to why there is such a small number of diverse attorneys at your law firms in general. I, I can I can speak to some of that in, in my firm. We would love to have more minority attorneys and more women attorneys. We don't have very many women um, among our attorneys. Um, and we keep on trying to um, offer you know, women to come and join our firm. And we've, we've been, we haven't been very successful in our hit rates. And so that's part of the reason why we don't have greater diversity. Um, it's just because, and we're working on it. We're, 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 we're trying to do that and make more offers and reach out further there because we know it's not really about, um, this is going to sound maybe bad. It's, it's, we care about having kind of a different set of experiences and different set of, um, kind of views as to kind of issues in the law that we practice because, because, you know, um, um, doing so will make us better and, and be, um, and have a fuller range of insights for our clients. Whereas if we're all the same in our firm, then we won't have that. We won't be able to have as richness of a response for our clients. Um, so that's that's my view. I know we're working on it and we have been kind of unsuccessful, not as successful as we'd like to, frankly, in terms of having more um, attorneys of color and more, more women among our ranks. Yeah, historically, we've actually had a disproportionately large number of female attorneys. Um, it's just not the case at the moment. Um, you know, part of the issue is, uh, well, with minority attorneys, there's just not the supply to meet the demand at the moment. I mean, there's a lot of firms that are implementing DEI type programs. And so they're actively recruiting. Um, and Utah is still a pretty white state. Um, you know, there's just not as many. I mean, I think the numbers are increasing, but historically there just haven't been as many. Minority attorneys in town, especially in the IP area. Um, I think maybe more answer so. your question to that point. We don't face, we have not faced pressure from our clients. You know, we don't have we don't have Coke and you know other big kind of Fortune 100 clients, so we don't get pressure to kind of of that kind from our clients. It's kind of self-imposed pressure. And, well, and that's very encouraging to hear. As you know, as I read the question, it it, it would be. I think it would be a shame for law firms to feel like the only reason why they want to diversify is from client pressure rather than from, you know, Brent, what you said, the the richness that that can bring to the overall experience, both for the firm and for the client. Well, I think if, if you've got a client who demands that, right, you're going to focus even more on getting those people so you can keep your client happy. Right. So, um, you know, other firms are going to say, look, we, you know, we'd love to have more women and minorities, but there's not an absolute urgency that that needs to be a higher priority of how we rank people. Whereas if you've got Coke or you've got, you know, other, when I was at uh, Durham, I know we had one client who they were really pushing um, that. And so you, you know, move female attorneys onto their work and, and look out to try and hire more in that. So I think there's, you know, some pressure there, but 
you also have to look at the supply and the skill sets. Because if there's, you know, there's five women attorneys out there who are available, but none of them do the type of law that you're doing. There's not a lot that you can do. We need to get that. we need to get more women kind of interested in transactional law. So, Lori, yeah. we're going to look to you to kind of help help on that. Well, um, you know, and, and, and I, sh- I say that you know we do have we do have um, a couple in our firm who who do um, that work, and they're great. And um, of course, that's my that's my my background because I'm a transactional lawyer. So, you know, um, I'm. I'm this gigantic moot court advocate. I think it was one of the best things I did in law school, but it's so exciting now that among the competition teams that we that we have at the law school, we have one for the transactional law competition and we have one for the patent application competition. So we are offering competition teams that aren't just go argue an appellate brief. So that's that's part of the way law school has expanded from the time I was there that I think is really exciting. Same. I, I wish those programs were in existence when Rand and I were going to school and you too, Lori, I guess, you know, that would have been great. I never wanted to be a litigator. You know, that stuff scared me. <laughs> I don't like, I don't like fighting. I like structuring things. So. Well, thank you. Our time is up. Um, I really, really appreciate you guys. This discussion has been really interesting for me. All of these, all of these three parts have been really interesting for me. I've heard completely different perspectives from each of the groups, but what I what I have heard the most is the the encouraging positive outlook that the national firms and the local firms of all sizes are are looking what the changing legal market is doing for the community and for our graduates and for BYU's graduates and and the good things that are coming out of it and the good ways firms are able to take these change and manage it in a positive way. So that's that's really been really encouraging for me because my initial reaction was negative. It's like, oh no, what's happening to my world? But well, not my world, but you know, the world I live in. But but um, it's just it's it's encouraging to me to see the positive way the firms are handling it and dealing with it and making the changes that work. So thank you very very much. Thank you. Thank you to all of you that participated. I hope to see you at the next webinar. We'll have one next week on a Utah Supreme Court decision regarding arbitration in family law cases. And I hope to see many of you there. Thanks so much.